This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John chapter 5, verses 5 to 7. This is session number one, and we are reading the first epistle of John. Let's start off with what an epistle is. Depending on your translation, you have this work called either an epistle or a letter. Anyone have anything else? Aren't they letters? Epistles are letters to congregations. Some of them are. I'm going to explain that in a second here. This is the Greek word, epistole, that gets translated as either letter or epistle. And most of these are just that. They are letters sent from somebody to someone else. But this word epistole also has a broader sense. It also just mean a message or even an order sent from someone to someone else. In some of these cases, like this particular epistle, it's not really a letter. It's not signed from someone like Paul or Peter or Jude or anyone like that. It's much more like an essay, a treatise, a sermon. So this word epistole covers a number of meanings besides being a letter in the modern English sense of the word. This is much more like a message in terms of a sermon or a spiritual treatise, a spiritual work that was sent out to whoever, but no specific person necessarily. Before I go in, let me say a few more things here. Who wrote this? There's no name mentioned with this. Historically, traditionally, it's been considered to be from someone called John the Apostle. And there's good reason to believe that may not be the case. It may have been someone by the name of John the Elder, who was buried in Ephesus with another John. And this might have been something written by John the Elder, because the Elder is mentioned in the second epistle of John. So this might be the same person. It's clear that all three epistles are related in terms of how they perceive Christ and, and the language they use is all very similar to what is found in the gospel according to John. That's called the Johannine school of thought. Also, Revelation is a work that we know was written by someone who was a prisoner on the island of Patmos by the name of John. That may have been a different John too. Uh, and the reason for that is even in early centuries, there was some discussion about that John being not the same John because the Greek language is so different. The actual language used in John is not the kind of fancy Greek you have in these three epistles or in the, the gospel according to John. It's much more rough, like someone whose Greek may have been a second language, not the first language of the person. I'm just commenting on that. I don't want to go into any depth on those sorts of things. It's more important to see what's being said in these epistles. When was this epistle written? Most likely, these three epistles were written in the 90s of the last decade of the first century, along with the gospel, according to John. It's not clear whether these epistles were written before or after, but it does appear that they were written at very much the same time. 
Some people think this one was written before, others think it was after. At the very beginning of this epistle, there's no name in terms of an author. Right away, there's this word we, W-E, being referred to, so that you have someone who may have been understood who it was, but he's not using his name. And that recalls for me how if you're writing for Christ, if you're re really inspired in writing for him, the name is not necessary. It's not the more important thing. The more important thing is what is being said. Just like friends for the first couple of hundred years up through the 19th century would never mark their graves with gravestones. They felt once the bodily remains didn't matter. Life had ended, doesn't matter where you're buried. I know at Jordan Meeting House, which I visited in England, a couple of hours outside of London, William Penn is buried there, and a very important early friend, Isaac Pennington, is also buried there. But we don't know where they're buried. They're just buried somewhere in the ground there. And also, I think even in Sandwich Meeting in Massachusetts, which is the oldest meeting in the world, even older than London Meeting, the older graves likewise are not marked. They're just out there somewhere. I should say for the new people, please ask questions at any time or make comments or whatever. Uh, pretty free and open to do that. Henry, I, I just wanted to mention that there are a number of graves in the Stillwater Cemetery that were never marked. For instance, the first generation of plumbers in Belmont County are in the Stillwater Cemetery. And the only way we know that is from the written record. Mm -hmm. So there are quite a, a bit of open space in the cemetery, but it's not available space. Yes. I'm curious. I don't recall, Nancy, what about the graveyard at Middleton? Is that similar? I know there are markers there, but the, are, yeah. is that a section that's not marked? And there's a section where there are trees and brush grown up that probably has graves in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, quite a yeah. bit. But I thought of Stillwater meeting being newer, but... 1812, something like that. I was just reading about it this morning. The weekend of Nathan Kirk's memorial service, we had a couple people who were descendants of Robert Plummer, and they had come to see if they could find his burial plot. And Lois Ann Rockwell said, the only way you'll know is from our plat map. Okay, one last thing before we begin, and that is, you see that this epistle is broken into five chapters with various verses in each chapter, different number of verses. Putting in chapters and verses is a very late thing in the history of Christianity. For the first, whatever it is, 1400 years, there were no chapters in verses. I have found a very interesting breakdown of this particular epistle that I like. It broke it into what really was perhaps the way it was written. And I'm just going to read this a bit as to how it's broken up. You have an introduction, then you have a first section about walking in the light, then the second section about living as God's children, and then the third section is the source of love and faith. And then there's a conclusion there to the epistle, which is then followed by a couple of supplements a prayer for sinners, and a summary of the letter. That's sort of like a PS in modern form, which we would call it. In each of these three sections, walking in the light, living as God's children, and the source of love and faith, in those first two you have several conditions, four conditions in walking in the light. In living as God's children, there are uh, three different conditions. 
And so there's a nice breakup, but of course the chapters and the verses don't match that. I'll see if I can maybe type this up and get this to you, because I found this in a translation. It's the New Jerusalem Bible translation. And I think this is one of the best actual breakups as to looking at the whole epistle, this whole message, this sermon, this, this writing, as to how it's organized. It makes much more sense if you see that. I just wrote this out before our meetings, uh, so I will uh, hopefully get this typed up and out to you before next week. That's rather interesting because my NIV study Bible has four main sections and then final exhortations. And they're all different from thine, except for the one is message for God's children. Chapter 2, 28 to 421. I've looked at several of these variations in breaking up the epistle, but this one I think is the best that I've found so far. After I send this out, if someone sees something better, please let me know. But this seemed to make the best sense to me. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. I usually use the New Revised Standard Version and the Revised Standard Version, the older one, which some scholars prefer to the newer one. And I agree with them in many ways, but it's easier to find the New Revised than the older Revised. Also, the King James is important because that was what friends used primarily of the Bibles they had available to them at that time. The older Geneva Bible was also used by people, including George Fox at times, and the Bishop's Bible. We have a number of translations, many translations today, and there was well, at least those three at the time of uh, the earliest friends. And there are problems with all of them, even the one I'm using, but that's where I like to get into the Greek when we get into it. Okay, chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 4. We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed, and we have seen it and testified to it, and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. At the very beginning of verse 1, does that sound familiar? Does that, does that ring any bells in anyone's heads about something elsewhere in the Bible? John 1.1. 1, 1. The Gospel according to John, John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. And also in Genesis, in the beginning, at the beginning. The first thing I wanted to mention again is we have this word we, we declare. And that is obviously someone writing for a group of Christians. He's expressing their views. Does others have a different beginning to this epistle? I'd like to just hear some of the other translations. First four or five words. I have that which was from the beginning, which Very we good. have heard. Yeah, okay. I have, we write you now about what has always existed. Okay, anyone else? Goodspeed says it is what existed from the beginning that we announced. Okay, anyone else? The New Jerusalem Bible begins something which has existed since the beginning. Very good. Okay, what we have here in the Greek is this word, ha, which means that which. 
It's a relative pronoun. That which, or as someone said, something, it's not precise. It's just something that, or that which was from the beginning. I've seen some translate this as him or he, and that's not quite what's being said here. It goes on further. What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, this is all the same paw, that, which, that's something. These Christians heard this in Jesus. They saw it with their own eyes in Jesus. They looked at it in Jesus, and they touched Jesus with their hands. So they were talking about something that they clearly got from hearing and listening to Jesus. And then it goes on in my translation to say, concerning the word of life. I'm probably going to be spending a lot of time on the very few verses here because they are very important. You see this word peri? That's a preposition. And there are many works that were written in Greek. I'm talking about non-biblical works. The titles would often begin with this word on or peri, which means a concerning or about. This is about the logos or concerning the logos or on the logos. So what you have here in this first verse is a title for the whole work, because so many Greek works would just have maybe a short title like, like this with peri and then whatever, concerning uh, metaphysics, concerning animals, concerning this or that. What you have here really is the title in this first verse, expanded title. Now, logos, this gets very complex. Logos, I've talked about in the last series, is a Greek word that has many meanings. It's very hard to just give one or two meanings to this because it has such broad meanings in Greek. One basic meaning is anything verbalized. That is a word, a phrase, a sentence, a paragraph, a speech, a talk, a sermon, it's anything. Most often it does not refer to a single word. Most often it refers to something that is spoken so that it could be a whole speech that someone gives. And actually in modern Greek it still has that meaning. It can mean a talk, a talk that you give, a speech. And it had that meaning in ancient Greek. The other second of this word is much more mental. And that is reasoning, the power of reasoning or one's reason. So when you get this word logos translated, so often when it refers to Jesus, say, being called the word of God, he is basically the expression or the utterance of God, because that's what it means. Anything uttered, anything expressed verbally, and that's where you get word. So in one sense, this isn't the best translation when we say Jesus is the word of God. He's much more the utterance of God. On the other hand, too, reasoning, reason. In the Old Testament, this would have been, the the Hebrew word would have been the word for wisdom, the wisdom of God. We'll probably have a lot more to say about this in the future. Sometimes this will get mistranslated because of how the word logos gets translated in an individual sentence might include more than one meaning. It might be referring to the wisdom of God as well as something that's just been said by somebody. So you have difficulties in translating this word logos. It's occurring to me that uh, there might be another meaning of these um, references to the senses in that first verse. 
I think it might be a way of saying that the experience of God is something um, that's not a conceptual activity, but is rather an encounter that one senses. Yes, and senses is perhaps the right word, because here it's all very much, in this particular sentence, you're talking about, they are saying that Jesus existed. And there was something in him that really touched us in a most profound way that we'll get into in a few couple of verses. Because I think it was, I'm forgetting his name, not St. Jerome, St. Augustine, St. Augustine says somewhere in Barclay's Apology, all these people who were hearing Jesus speak, listening to him, seeing these profound miracles, they had this physical understanding of when they saw that, but they missed out what was most important, that what was in him. This wisdom with a capital W, or this word of God, this expression of God in him. They saw the physical man, Jesus, but they missed out on the word of God. What I meant to say was that it perhaps doesn't pertain to the historical Christ, but to the inward Christ that is experienced within rather than conceived of intellectually. Yes, that's what I'm trying to say, too. Okay. That's it. It's the internal. I make a big point almost every time I speak now, if I can, between inward and outward dimensions. Those two <laughs> words are so critical in understanding the perception of reality, both the physical, chemical world and the non-physical, non-chemical, spiritual realm of God, divine realities. I keep on referring to these in talks I give because somehow people, they understand it, but they don't understand it. <laughs> or they understand it academically, but it's a hard kind of thing to understand, to get really into looking at the inward realities, the divine realities, the spiritual realities. I'm interested, though, that in several at least the four translations that I have, they emphasize the senses, hearing, seeing, and touching. There's a reason and for that. I'm wondering if it has to do that they have not only been in his presence, but also still are in his presence. Let me say something about this epistle also is a response to what was happening in the individual house churches of this writer. And there was a breakup. There were people who were leaving. And those people who were leaving, we believe they were what we would call docetists or docetists. They believe that Jesus really wasn't a human being like we are human beings, that he only appeared to be a human being. He only seemed to be human, that he was like 99.999% God, and only a tiny external outward skin covering showed him to be a human being. And this was, it appears, probably the earliest heresy. And this word docetist comes from a Greek word, which is a verb, which means seem. They saw Jesus as only seeming to be human. And I can say today, there are perhaps millions of Christians who are of this kind of persuasion that Jesus is so much more God than human. If you go back to the baptism of Jesus, and after the baptism, Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, and he was tempted. He didn't give in to those temptations. If he were God, how could he be tempted? 
you can't tempt God. He was right. human. Could have given into those temptations, and then he would not have been the Messiah. He would not have been the Word of God. He would not have been what we know him as. So this was the very first heresy, and it's called docetism or docetism, or docetism. I've heard people say that too. I think that's really important to emphasize because people do jump from one place to another and they'll say, oh, so you don't believe that Jesus was human. Or they'll say, you're spiritualizing him too much. You know, they'll go from one to another. And we, so we need to be sure that people know that we believe both. If Jesus weren't truly 100% human, then we can't have him as a model because we can no, in no way be like him to imitate Christ if he himself wasn't a human being, 100% human, and of course, divine at the same time. So, Henry, I have another question on this. I'm wondering if this is the beginning of a polemic against at least one version of Gnosticism, in which matter, as distinct from spirit, is evil, is fallen, is in the realm of the devil. Gnosticism, essentially docetism or docetism, appears to have been an early form that eventually grew into the Gnosticism of the second century. There were eight different forms of Gnosticism. It wasn't that simple thing. You could just say, oh, he was a Gnostic. You know, maybe we should talk about it now for a minute. So like I said, these first few verses are very important, so we'll spend a lot on these first few verses here. This word Gnosticism goes back to a Greek word that's a noun, which means knowledge, and there's the verb gnosis, the noun for knowledge, and gnosko means to know in the sense of experience. There are other verbs in Greek that mean know, but this particular verb has a very special kind of sense when it's used in a spiritual sense here. Are, are somewhat similar. It's much more of an intimate kind of knowledge. When you translated the Hebrew into Greek, Adam knew Eve, that kind of intimate sexual knowledge experience. And this is the kind of knowing to know God is to have something more than just an academic head knowledge about God, knowing who he is, what he is, but to actually have that kind of sense, experience of him. So that whenever this word is used, so often I keep in the back of my head this word experience, because that's what it's being said here. Now, in modern English, we call these the Gnostics in English, but mainstream Christians call them the false Gnostics, the pseudo-gnosticoi, that there is the true knowledge. And this word is used by Paul quite often, and you'll see it here in the Johannine writings here too. There's a true knowledge, and then there's the false knowledge. Unfortunately, we call these Gnostics just Gnostics, whereas in the Greek, they would have been known as the false Gnostics, the false knowers. Henry, today, isn't the Gnosticism um, a foundation of the New Thought, New Age movement? I think they always feel they have this special knowledge. There's just so many people out there who use this word Gnostic and Gnosticism in so many incorrect ways anyway, so that there's just a lot of messy hodgepodge of words and understandings. And uh, I don't know if all New Age people are like that. I don't think so. But, but there's a difference between having true knowledge and false knowledge. True experience versus false that's kind of an important point to make here. 
The reason that I raise the question is that it seems that this would be affirming that worldview which Judaism had, that the created order is good rather than something to be escaped from. And that being able to have these sensory, tactile relations with Jesus affirms something not just about him, but about creation itself. Yes, when God made the world, he rested, and what he made was good. It says that very clearly. Of course, then how is it used? We'll get into that when we maybe talk about the word cosmos, which gives us our English word cosmos, but it's the Greek word that means world. Actually, that word cosmos is related to the English word cosmetics. The basic meaning of the word is to adorn something, to put something on something. So you can see how cosmetics would be the same thing. And the, uh, the cosmos is the worldly order of things. You know, everything is in its place. But there's many more meanings to cosmos when we get to that word, which does come up many times as to the world, meaning the earth, the world, the universe heaven and earth, the world in the negative sense, worldliness, and that's also versus having your head in the divine things, having it in much more physical, material kinds of things. I myself, when I want to criticize some Christian churches and their teachings, I look at them as much more materialistic kinds of Christianities, worldly Christianities. So anyway, I think we'll stop there, okay? Nancy, is this time for me to stop recording? Yeah, I think so, if uh, we're stopping. <laughs> did I stop there or did I pause? This podcast has been a production of Ohio Yearly Meeting. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Kim Palmer. The introduction and credits were read by Chip Thomas. The quote in our introduction is from the first epistle of John, chapter 1, verses 5 to 7, the English Standard Version. We welcome feedback on this or any of our podcast episodes. Contact us through our website, ohioyearlymeeting.org, or email us at oimconservative at gmail.com.